0: Hey, good morning. How are we? Great. Hey, my name's RD, and I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at Fellowship, and also, as you could tell, on the teaching team. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, you can grab it, or you can turn it on. We'll be in Luke chapter 18, Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, and we'll be in some other scriptures too. Uh, we're doing uh, on Gospel Sundays from now until Greg decides to do something else, we're going to do the parables. Um... And look at how the parables teach us and tell us about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. And so this morning we're going to be talking about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And there's a lot that we're going to press into this morning that God has for us. Uh, And so I'm just going to start and get into it and read it. And then we'll just work through it in our time together. Okay? All right, Luke 18, uh, picking up in verse 9 through 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell, you, Jesus, I tell you, this man went home to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so this parable is... One of those, it's not quite as difficult to decipher at the outset. It's a contrasting parable of two types of people. Uh, and Jesus, Luke begins with a, a narrative comment about what Jesus is about to say in verse nine. Luke says that Jesus is telling this parable and he gives us the purpose up front, which is nice. Because sometimes you're like, I don't know what Jesus is saying here. And then the disciples are sometimes like that too. And Jesus is like, Okay, fine, come over here. I'll tell you what it means. I'll tell you what it means. This time, Luke just tells us this is who Jesus is talking to. In verse 9, he told the parable to some who, what? trusted themselves that they were righteous, that they were accepted, that their righteousness was based in themselves, and treated others with contempt. And that's how it always works. Whenever you think you're righteous, you're always going to have disdain for other people, right? Because you, in your effort, made yourself what you are. And other people who aren't as good as you, right, what's wrong with them, right? So self-righteousness creates disdain for other people. What's great about Jesus is he never gossips. He's talking to the people he's about to tell the story that's going to blow their world up, right? And he is going to lay it on them pretty thick. He's unafraid. Verse 10 Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So Jesus likely telling the story to um, two Pharisees. Uh, At the beginning, they are no doubt, even though you think at some point they would get it, they're like, oh yeah, we know where this is going. Pharisee, tax collector, right? This dude has a PhD in theology. He knows the scriptures. He's a leader. We look up to him and tax collector, enemy of the Jewish people, enemy of the state. What does he know about the Lord? This is going to be delicious, And Jesus is just like, oh, yes, it will be. This will be very, very fun for me and not for you. So two men contrasting the Pharisee, it starts with him, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Okay, this is the worst prayer ever. Right? If you're teaching a class on prayer and you want an example of how not to pray, this is it, right? This is how you do not pray. Because how many times does he say the word I? Five times, right? Five times. God is in there, so there's some mentioning of God, but then based on how he is wired and who he is, he reverts back to his ultimate love, which is himself, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. Right. All these bad people, and then the tax collector, he sees maybe giving him the side eye, and he says, "Even this tax collector, I thank you that I'm also not like him. I'm also not like him. I, I fast, which was not required by the law, so he's doing something even more than he's required to do. I give ties of all that I get, so not not bad things, right? Good to be generous, good to give to the poor." And yet the motivation in his heart for doing it is that he's seeking to justify himself and to present his resume before God and say, bless me, in God's house. And then Jesus, right, there's no comment yet about this being right or wrong, right? We know that because we know the parable, but as Jesus is reading, is telling the story, right, the Pharisees may be thinking, yes, (laughs) so far, so good. And then Jesus says, but... The tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We're gonna come back to the um, Pharisee a bit at the end, but I wanna focus where I feel God leading this message on the tax collector and on his prayer, on one of the most beautiful and instructive verses in all of the Bible. Because hidden within this verse is a way that you and I can unlock deeper intimacy with God deeper joy in Christ, and walk in greater freedom than we came in here with this morning. All in that one verse. It's all pregnant with so much power. And so we're going to walk through it and what it looks like. And what I want to do with that is really say that the, the basis of this prayer and the posture of the tax collector's heart is really a case study in what repentance looks like. In what it looks like to come before God as you are and turn and leave a different type of person because you've actually encountered God. And so we're gonna work through three pieces of repentance uh, and see how those instruct how you and I can then live lives which have more intimacy with God, joy in Christ, and freedom from the power of sins that just enslave us. So, first here, um, Number one, well, I I should tell you that none of this is original to me because nothing really is original to me. You just borrow as a preacher and then try and redo it a little bit. So Thomas Watson, who's a great Puritan, he has a long PDF, or I guess it wasn't a PDF for him, like a pamphlet. He wrote a long pamphlet uh, called with the really creative title that would sell a lot of books on the doctrine of repentance. Okay, that's gonna fly off the shelves at Barnes and Noble. Can't wait to pick that book up, right? Some of you probably are like repentance Fantastic, what a great morning to come to church. But the, this it's, it's deep, it's thick, but it's profound. I'm gonna pick out some pieces of what he talks about of what the process of repentance looks like and how it's vital for the life of a follower of Jesus. So the first thing that he says that you have to do when you enter, begin the process of repentance is he talks about sight. Sight, you have, you have to see your sin. You have to see it. So what happens to the uh, tax collector before he comes to the temple? Why does he come to the temple? Because something's been pressed upon his heart, right? Does he just oh, there's the temple? I should go. I should. I should maybe go in there. Not with his posture. In some way, God has placed upon his heart his sin and his wickedness and the gap between he and God, and he says, I have to go to the temple to confess this. I have to get this off of my chest. And so in some sense, he sees his sin, he looks into himself, and he says, I'm broken. I'm wicked, and I need cleansing. The first step in repentance and in any change you want to see in your life is you have to see your sin and own your sin before God. But why don't a lot of us do that, including me, as God revealed to me this week as I worked on a sermon about repentance? A couple of reasons. Um, We don't have the time or spend the time seeing our sin because we're so busy. How could we actually hear from God about what's going on in our life? When we fill our life with such activity, even church activity, it's difficult to hear God reminding us about the ways in which we're off track because maybe we're in so many Bible studies, right? So much growing, so much positivity in our life, I don't wanna deal, I don't have time to think about my sin because I'm moving forward so quickly, right? Self-examination is not something that we do well in our culture, right? So we don't have the time, we don't, we don't make the time to do it. Our life is just so busy that if God wanted to shatter us, it might take something huge for him to get our attention. And many of us know what that shattering actually looks like when God brings the hammer down. But he always does it because he loves us. We're too busy, we don't do self-examination. We don't do it with an eye to sin, right? Our self-examination, my self-examination, is built around my dreams, right? My plan for my life. When I think about my New Year's resolutions, and I'm one of those people that tries to do those every year, and then wonders by January 9th, why, again, do I try and do these things, right? Self-examination of my sin has yet to make the list right? How do I want to grow in my marriage? Not a bad thing. Hopefully husbands, that is part of some list you have, right? How can I grow in my parenting? Good, right? How can I really be successful this year as a pastor, as a leader? I want to go to this conference. I want to have more time. I want to not be on my phone as much. All good things. I don't see how can I grow in self-examining my sinful nature before God. And yet that would be way more important than any of those things. Because out of that self-examination, you would be a better husband, a better father, a better follower of Christ. Again, if you go to Barnes & Noble, again, these are always rip on them, even though I'm there all the time, and go to the now called self-transformation section, which is just, yes, that is, you are going to transform yourself. Fantastic. Just pick up one of those books. I'm sure it'll be super helpful, right? You, in your self-examination, is just how can you get better? without any understanding of what's gone wrong in your life, what, what, what your baggage is you're bringing into your present, and so you'll never really change. There's never gonna be, if you, if you do not spend time examining your heart, you will never grow. Or you will think you're growing, but you're going nowhere. It's like being on a treadmill. You may run 10 miles, you get off, you haven't gone anywhere. Right? And that's what so much of us feel like, our growth as follows as a crisis, don't we? Self-examination, it's so, is so important. Um, last point on this is we don't do the work to dig out the root issue of our sin. And this is so difficult and so hard. I'll give you an example. So uh, a few weeks ago, I could give this example many times. Uh, I was being short with my wife and rude to her and just kind of passive-aggressive, which is just sometimes I, I just am, and kind of angry with her, and it felt like she and the girls were just kind of interrupting my life. <laughs> And so I was short with them and angry with them and just kind of, nothing like yelling or like, ah, you know, but just like not letting her in. We're not talking well. Things are just really off. Um, You know, and maybe I'm being impatient with my twin girls who are four with Maisie and Camille. Uh, and you know, sometimes it, you can be impatient. When Maisie, my sweet daughter, wants to line up her eighteen thousand animals in her bed, all in descending height, except for Rainbow Dash, Figaro, and whatever pinky onesie face, but she doesn't tell me how she wants those arranged, right? I have to know. And then she loses her mind. Sometimes I think, Lord, this is when I can be impatient, right? This is when I can just—this is when I can just leave, right? So that's then me once again justifying my sin. So just before you all. I need to acknowledge that and own that first part of the message. But oftentimes, right, my girls just want to spend time with me, and I'm busy, right? I'm busy doing ministry. I'm busy serving people. People need me. People need me to help them grow, right? These are the things that I'm thinking in my um, mind. And so um, the, 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 the behavioral issues are impatience, passive aggressiveness, um, anger, right? Those are the behavior issues that you can know. But if that's the only place you go to, you will never change that behavior, it's helpful to at least be aware of that. That can take courage. So, my wife and I were having dinner, and I asked her just kind of honestly, say, Hey, where do you think? How do you think things are going? Where do you think we're at? And she was like, Hey, I feel like you really think of me and the girls sometimes interruptions to your life. Okay, I'll just take a longer drink of this water before I, I, I respond to that, right? And, and wh- how do I respond, right? In my mind, I'm thinking, you should be so lucky to have married a man of the cloth, right? <laughs> you could have married Scott Rod, the hot rod, right? Your eighth grade loser boyfriend, right? You could have married him, right? This is what I'm thinking in my mind. That's what, where will your life be then, right? I'm interruption in your life, right? I am doing God's work, right, in the <laughs> ministry, right? I, right? These are all the things I'm thinking as I'm, Okay, okay, Lord, okay, Lord, okay, Lord. When I put this glass down, what am I about, right, to to say? But did I say that? No. Was I thinking it? Yeah, I was. Do you think it? Yes, right. And so interruption helps move it down the road further, but it's still not the root issue. What's the root issue? This is my life. I deserve this. I deserve my time. You are an interruption because this is my life. And when it really starts to get scary is when you start to think, man, what if my life had gone a different direction? What if I didn't have all of this? And the good gifts of God's becomes impediment to your dreams for your life. And so God was like, you need to acknowledge the sin. You need to beat your breast. And you need to come to the temple and pray. Right, that, that's what's going on here. Seeing your sin is vital, but if you don't ask why you're doing the things you're doing, you will never see it clearly. Why, why do you feel the need to be greedy? Why do you feel the need to be why, What? What's the energy behind your anger towards this person? Behind this conflict, right? Asking the why question is so hard, which is why you need to do it in prayer and in a community of people that you trust to speak into your life. Because if you can't see, you're blind. You're blind. Have to acknowledge your sin. Have, have to do it. So number one, Thomas Watson, he says, sight, you've got to see it. But here's the great news. You know who allows you to see it? It's God. It's a gift of God that he opens your eyes to see your sin. Isn't that incredible? Because he already knows it. He just wants you to press into it so you could be healed, it's amazing. So that's the posture, that's what predates even the tax collector coming to that, is something like this where he's saying, I acknowledge it. And you can tell that based on his posture and based on what he says. The second thing is the difference between what happens after you acknowledge your sin. When, I, when Emily shared that with me and I felt the weight of that, I felt grief and sorrow. And the Bible says there are two kinds of sorrow. There's worldly sorrow and there's godly sorrow. There's worldly grief and there's godly grief. So if you are following Christ, you will have grief and you will have sorrow. But there's a way that grief leads to repentance and joy, and there's a way it leads to death. Now, what does that look like quickly? Second Corinthians 7:10, Paul says this for God godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Great news. Whereas worldly grief produces death. What's the difference? A couple of things. Worldly grief focuses on the sorrow that comes from the exposing of my sin. Not from the sin that leads to my exposing. Does that make sense? Worldly sorrow says consequences are the problem. It's how my girls are, right? My wife said she rolled up. I was going over the sermon with her, and my wife rolled up on Maisie or Camille, and the first thing Camille said was, I'm not being sneaky. (laughs) Right? My girls are four, and they're at an age where they're doing things which are just not good. Right? And it breaks my heart. And yet what they get most upset about is the consequences. Can't have candy, right? Can't go do this. That's what they're upset by, the consequences. They don't have the mental capacity to understand how they've hurt us. And yet so often, in worldly grief, we act just like four-year-olds. I'm upset I got caught. There's grief, I'm upset, but I'm not really upset or grieved by the sin itself. Right? I was going over this with my wife. This was classic. And um, I go, I go. so the, the, like the grief I felt when you shared the interruption thing with me, and I kind of paused, and then she goes, she goes, yeah, I bet, it, I bet it hurt your pride. And I was like, oh, well, yeah, I should write that down. Thanks, babe. That's really, <laughs> she was like, sorry, was that too much? I was like, I mean, it did, but just you saying it so quickly was like, wow, that was, wow, right? But what, it, did, it hurt my pride. Because I thought, even though I'm young and I've only been married just over six years, I thought I wouldn't still feel like the woman I love in the world is an interruption to my life or my kids are. And yet they are. And so that brings grief. But worldly grief just says, I'm sorry that I got exposed, that I'm not as great as I am. But it's not gonna make anything change, is it? It doesn't lead to change. The Bible says it leads to death, separation from God. Opposite of death is life, no life. Secondly, worldly grief doesn't deny sin. This is what's subtle about it, usually. It doesn't deny sin, but it minimizes your role in it, and it maximizes the role of your circumstances and others. It's what Adam does in the garden. This woman you gave me. So he's blaming the only woman in the world. <laughs> Where's he going to go? No guys he can go hang out with, right? And he's blaming God. And yet you and I do the same thing, right? Right? this woman you gave me, right? Things like that guy I was counseling years ago, he had an affair with his wife, and at the, at the beginning he had this grief, he had this pain, um, and I thought, man, I think he's really contrite. And then slowly but surely I began to hear things like, well, yeah, I'm sorry for what I did, but man, if you only knew the things that she was doing, that I had no other choice, right? So That's what I'm thinking, wait, wait, you had no other choice. Right? It begins subtle. Like, I'm actually the grieved one here. She's the problem because you can't face it and you can't own it. And you have grief, which is built on emotionalism, and emotions come down and nothing ever changes, right? Leads to death. Doesn't lead to heart transformation and change. Worldly grief. Doesn't accept my role in the sin. Number three, worldly grief doesn't take sin seriously but tries to manage it. It's not that big a deal. I can train it. Right, It's just a little bit of anger. I won't snap again. I won't hit you again. I won't shut you out again. I won't look at porn again. I won't be as slothful as I've been before. I won't be as busy as I've been before. I promise I won't do it again. But you will. You will because you haven't gone to the heart of why you keep doing those things and you're not tapping into a power which can actually change your behavior. worldly worldly grief leads to death and not not to life john owen said another puritan be killing sin or sin will be killing you you cannot manage your sin you cannot just have it over here it's a fire that will destroy you and everything you love if you think i can i can master this no you got to bring it out to the light godly grief what does that do Godly grief. You see in the tax collector in his physical posture. What does it say about him? The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. Repentance. Couldn't even look up to God because of his felt unworthiness. The grief. But I bet it was godly grief. Or if it wasn't this time, it was the next time because he understood. Godly grief focuses on the sin itself. King David confronted about his affair and helping a do get killed, says against you, and you only have I sinned, right? Real real, um, admitting your sin looks to God first and then horizontally secondly. You only have I sinned, Lord. No excuses. Godly grief is clear about my role in sin and doesn't blame shift. The tax collector says, if you only knew the people I was working with, I'm a tax collector. Of course I'm gonna react like this. No one likes me right? Why wouldn't I be angry at times, right? You don't know my wife. You don't know what it's like, right? No. Does he say any of that? No, none of that. None of, none of that. It's not about blame shifting. It's about taking blame. Thirdly, godly grief is about rooting out and killing sin and not managing it. Colossians 3, Paul says, take care of sin. Wait, no, he doesn't say that. (laughs) He says, put it to death or it will put you to death. It is so serious. It is so serious. So serious. Worldly grief is like I said, being on a treadmill. You run a lot, you do a lot, you go nowhere. Godly grief keeps moving you along the road of repentance. Right? That's what the verse says in, in 2 Corinthians. It says, it leads you to repentance and the salvation and life without regret. See, it's moving you on a track of greater health and freedom and joy. That's the mercy and the kindness of God. Where he starts us is not where he leaves us. He keeps moving us along to reveal more of himself. So number three here, confession. God be merciful to me, a sinner. God be merciful to me, a sinner. What a prayer, what a confession, right? Confession can be difficult, right? Because it's being ruthlessly honest with God. But if we don't confess, honestly, we'll waste away. This will be on the screens, um, Psalm 32, three and five. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And yet I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. The next verse, which I don't think is up there, but says this. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David says, when I kept silent, When I kept it all in, my very bones wasted away because when you keep sin in and don't confess it, you're staying in the dark and you're hiding. And God cannot bring his light to change your life. And yet what the enemy always says is hide, run away from God. Because if he really knew, he wouldn't love you. He's the accuser, he's always telling lies. And yet we know that's the opposite because repentance is always about coming home, actually. Psalm 32 of Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confession is hard. Real confession is hard and difficult, but it's just saying, here's my junk. Here's my stuff. Here's what's going on to the Lord and to not everyone to trusted people in your life. And so, you know what? I'm actually a mess." I actually thought I'd be a lot further along than I am. I tell you what, man, I'm absolutely broken. I have no idea how to do this. I have no idea how to do this. I don't even know how to read the Bible. And shouldn't churches be the safest places for confession? And yet, aren't they often not that? I don't have to raise hands. How many of you have been a part of a church where you've been shamed or judged when you've confessed something beyond, I struggle with pride? as if what we're doing here is everyone's just gathering here to feel better about how great they are, right? Why why do you go to church? Man, I just love the music. Man, I just really feel so much, I just feel like it's just so happy and, and it's great and all my friends are there and it's just kind of a social thing, right? Please. Why are you part of the church? Because I'm an absolute mess. I need to be reminded every day of who God is in Christ through other people fighting with me. That's why I'm a part of the church. Are you messy? Are you broken? Yeah, Here's the thing, can we all just admit that we're absolute messes, right? And get away from this Knoxville, nice, everything is fine, everything's good, but yet I'm devastated inside, right? That's what the Pharisee's doing. He's saying, I thank you I'm not like these other people. I thank you that I'm not like them. I do all of these things, and yet, what do you is happening underneath his heart? He's got to keep up this appearance that he matters, that everything's okay because I'm doing these things. And talk about performance. Talk about anxiety. I'm perfect. So he's looking down at other people to feel better about himself. All right, Brene Brown, she says, she says this. She says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is riding shotgun, and fear is the backseat driver. When your life is built on how great you are, you're going to shame other people but behind you is going to be this fear that you're going to be found out. And you know what confession does? It says I don't have to be found out because it's here. Here it is, Lord. The guys that I confess to and just share with, I don't, I, there it is. And churches should be places where we say I'm broken, I'm broken, I'm messy, and yet God loves me in the mess. Right? That's what we should say. Confession silences the power of the enemy, the accuser. Because he's roaring and roaring and roaring about all the things you've done. And yet you say, I know all of those things. And Jesus is gonna say, yeah, I know them all too the second I went to the cross. So we can just shut it down. Because nothing that our demon claim has ever done is a surprise to God. It's not a surprise to God. Confession, confession is the way to keep moving on the path towards transformation. Well, how does the parable end? It doesn't end with the confession. It ends with Jesus' commentary on his story. And what does Jesus say? Because up until this point, you actually don't know anything about how Jesus is going to make a judgment on this. What does Jesus say? Something which is very encouraging and very terrifying. He says, verse 14, I tell you this man, which man? The tax collector, the mess. Went home justified, literally in the Greek meaning made right with God, in the law court of God, guilty, now innocent. I wish there was a period there. There's not, there's a comma. Jesus says, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, I tell you, this man in his confession went home a son. Now, I know, I know, man, this sermon has been heavy. Uh, there's been a lot of weight uh, to it, acknowledging sin, pressing into sin, going to deep places in your heart, the darkest parts of your heart, and saying, man, does he really want me to root those things up, to press into those things? Like, I'm good. And I'm saying, you have to do that. But here's the great, man, here's the great news. When you press into the sin and the darkness to the wormwood and the gall, you experience the mercy and the grace of God with so much more fire and power and life than you ever did before. That is theology that will not lead you to go, meh, the mercy of God. It's theology and living, which will lead you to say the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God. It'll make you sing. How did the man go home? Justified? Yes. But I bet he also went home jumping and excited, and overjoyed at what God did because Jesus said, this man is justified. This man is in my family. And when you face the depth of your sin and you realize the depth of God's love is even greater, that's worship. Some of you may be stuck in your life and say, man, I just don't feel anything. I'm walking through the scriptures. I just, the mercy of God, the grace of God, even right now, they're just words. I'm I'm empty and I'm dry. Faith, acknowledge your sin. Press into it. Repent, 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 right? How does this happen? Because our God is merciful. It's who he is. God shows mercy because in his character, he is merciful. Ephesians 2.4, our God is rich in mercy. Micah 7.18, our God delights to show mercy. God is overjoyed. He takes pleasure in showing mercy. God does not begrudgingly hand out mercy. Okay, here's a little bit of pride from my fingers, R.D. Here's some mercy, but everyone else has got to get theirs. No. He delights to show you mercy. And if you don't confess your sin, then you keep the dam of his mercy shut and you do not experience the life God has for you in the gospel. And so many of you, I'm just gonna take a bet, that's where you are. Because it's often where I am. Because lurking, even if we say I'm a tax collector, not a Pharisee, even in us who are tax collectors, the Pharisee heart is always there. Even saying, oh I'm thankful that I'm not like the Pharisees. So some of us maybe need to repent of our repentance. And how we are repenting. Maybe. Our God's mercy covers all the creation. And every single moment of every single day, you cannot look at a mountain or a bird or a grain of sand without saying it's covered by the mercy of God. Lamentations three, our God's mercy is new every morning. Every morning, God's mercy is new. What does that mean? You can repent as much as you need to and want to. And God invites you to. And there's new mercy every morning. Not Monday, Wednesday, Friday. (laughs) Not like waiting for that paycheck on the 15th. No, new mercy available to you. Isn't it just amazing? His heart is so filled with mercy towards us because it's who he is. It's who he is. Titus 3, 3 through 7 says this. By the washing and regeneration renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us. Begrudgingly. Richly. Through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified. Going home changed. We might become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. That if you don't have verse 3. Verses 4 through 7. Will not have any power. And sometimes we have to sit in our sin. A little bit longer. To receive more of the beauty of his grace. Mercy is only for the broken. That's the title of the message. So man, what do you need to acknowledge and see? And maybe you're like, I don't even see anything. Well, all right. <laughs> then there's work to do. How are you grieving things that God brings into your heart, that people bring up to you in a worldly way, in a godly way? What do you need to confess to God and to others? How can you walk out of here in greater freedom because you're not hiding anymore? And as you're confessing, as you're acknowledging, remember all the while. This is what, when I was working on this message this week, talk about like, okay, Lord, like there are some deep parts of my heart I don't even want to go into that you're bringing up right now where I just want to say, no more, Lord. Like, I get it. I'm messed up. And yet God in his grace keeps bringing things and moving them up in my heart. Why? So I keep my face cast down Like how the tax collector enters? No. So that knowing Artie McClanagan, liar, lustful, not honoring God, impatient, jealous, greedy, All of those things are true about me, and yet the greater truth is I am God's son through Christ and by faith, and that is the ultimate reality. And so it leads me from looking down and not being able to look up to the heavens to looking up into the heavens into the heart of the gospel itself and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God, through Jesus on the cross, says, yes, I will be. Why? Because I love you. That's how the humble are exalted. That's how the kingdom works. I tell my girls all the time I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. Always have, always will. Even though they sin and mess up, I love them. And so does God. Mercy's for the broken. Let's pray. Father, oh, oh man. I'm just so thankful that I just, we, I just need to pray to you right now because of the weight. And so, Father, I know right now, I don't know, people, wherever people are right now listening on, on the podcast, just wherever, Lord, would you just hit us with your grace and your mercy and your love? Would you give us the courage to see our sin and to savor your salvation? Father, help us not be people that just say, oh, the mercy of God, oh, yeah. But oh my goodness, the mercy of God for me. And would Fellowship Church be a place where it's safe to be messy? And yet we're encouraged to let Jesus redeem the mess. Father, we love you. We're more grateful you love us and you know us. God, we're thankful you've been merciful to us who are sinners. In your son's name we pray. All God's people said, amen.